Hi, Nikki. How are you doing? Any top tips for surviving the absolutely freezing weather at the moment that we've got here? Yeah, I think locating a pair of gloves is a sensible option. But I've just been reading up on the Wim Hof method. So I think this is a free introduction to it, really. For those that aren't familiar, it's that cold is generally very beneficial to health, but also in building willpower. So going out into it isn't the end of the world. Yeah, so you're leaning right into the cold weather then. You're saying actually bring it on because it's good. Exactly. Yeah, well, my personal tips would be ski base layers, chunky knits, fundamental, the puffiest puffers you can find. And I haven't been to the office that much so far this year, but I am going in quite a lot the next couple of weeks. So I am definitely going to have to dig out a pair of gloves as well. Otherwise, those commutes are going to be a little bit painful. Yeah, well, speaking of going to the office and into town and stuff, I feel like there's been a little bit of a mini boom in like little events and stuff. Some managers still running their annual Outlook sessions. What are you finding? Are you doing a few events at the moment? Yeah, I've got a few Outlook sessions in the diary and also a few on biodiversity and ESG that continues to be quite popular. I think the Outlook ones are particularly interesting as they really quite vary as to whether we're at the start of a potential recession or whether we're coming out of one. Yeah, it does feel like a little bit balanced on a knife edge, doesn't it? People on sort of on one side or the other of, of it. I guess back to that cliche prediction is difficult, especially about the future, right? Yeah, definitely. Anyway, I suppose one area where maybe prediction isn't that difficult is the area we're talking about today, which is the buyout market for DB pension funds. should say that today's episode is a little bit nichier than what I think we would normally go for, as in it's really relevant to one particular group of investors, albeit one that we obviously work with an awful lot, i.e. UK defined benefit pension funds. But a really huge topic, an article in the Times just today, actually, talking about the demand for pension buyouts frenzied, according to the business editor of the times today. So really good timing to talk to our team who have some, I think, some really interesting insights on this, right? Yeah, I can see it's really become really topical in the last few weeks. Great. Okay, then. Well, shall we get on and talk to Catherine all about it? Sounds good. Let's do it. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everybody. Well, today we are talking a really topical area, and that's the area of insurance buyouts, bulk annuities, de-risking, call it what you want. But the idea of DB pension schemes transferring their liability to the insurance market, huge topic at the moment, of course. And joining us to talk about that, we have Catherine Hopper, a partner in LCP's de-risking team. Catherine, welcome. Hi, great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Catherine, if you could give us a sense of your role. Yeah, sure. And I should say, actually, this is my first ever podcast, so really looking forward to it. My role, so I'm a partner within LCP. I'm a qualified actuary and I wear many different hats. But one of the things I spend a lot of my time doing is helping schemes, whether that be trustees or companies, secure the scheme's benefits in full with an insurer. Sometimes there'll be lots of jargon within pensions, but just to be clear, that's called a buy-in when a pension scheme insures their members with a life insurer. So that's one of the main things that I do. And it's a really interesting area. And as you say, Dan, really topical at the moment. Yeah, well, there's so many questions we want to get into there. Before we get into all of that, Catherine, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? 
Oh, good question. I guess one thing is I'm actually quite a huge Louis Theroux fan. I watched all of his episodes and his latest series on BBC where he's interviewing the likes of Judy Dench, Stormzy and others. He's such a great interviewer and really gets to the heart of what people really believe in. So yeah, looking for some Louis Theroux style questions today. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure we can promise that kind of standard, but funnily enough, Nikki and I were talking about this just the other day, this question about the skill of being an interviewer and some people just do it really well don't they and it is really interesting to see it done well in those situations where they can really get into the heart of it and cut to the chase i don't know if we can promise quite promise that level of grilling or whatever but we'll see yeah please don't grill me (laughs) perfect so the lcp de-risking report is newly out if you could tell us a bit about why you created it what its purpose is and how long we've been producing it Yeah, of course. So the de-risking report was out last year, towards the end of last year. And this is an annual report that we do, which trustees, companies, insurers all read. We get great feedback on. And and the reason why we, we do it is that this is an area that as a firm, we've spent a lot of time advising on. We were the first consultancy to advise on a pensioner buy-in. And Ever since then, I think I was back in 2007, before my time, but ever since then, we have produced these annual reports just to share our insight. For many schemes considering coming to market, there's a number of things to consider. It's an ever-changing market as well. And so I think it's useful for schemes and as well as insurers just to understand the topical issues so they can prepare their schemes and consider their own strategies in light of that. Yeah, I think it's fair to say it's become a real benchmark in the industry, hasn't it? I mean, I certainly used to track it back before I worked at LCP. It was a big thing that everyone looked at. And I guess it's really traced the bulk annuity market from when it was a bit of a niche thing, sort of 15 years ago, a few little bits going on here and there, to being really front and centre of what a lot of schemes are, are trying to do. And it's a good piece for kind of tracking that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the key thing coming out of the report this time was the number of schemes that are now within touching distance of being able to afford a buyout, which is where they ensure all of the members within their scheme. And then that enables them to be able to wind up their scheme. And I think the stats were showing that we estimate that around one in five of those schemes are fully funded. So many, many more schemes this is now more relevant to than back in the early 2000s, as you mentioned, Dan. Yeah, that is a huge takeaway, isn't it? So we're saying one in five you think are fully funded on a buyout basis. It's interesting because we debated this before a little bit, haven't we? I think I have seen some other industry numbers that are estimating even higher than that. But I know obviously your team put a lot of work into those numbers. Maybe you'll go on the slightly more conservative end, but even one in five is an awful lot to have got to that level, isn't it? Yeah, and there's quite a number of assumptions that have to go into this. We think about it really carefully. We have a number of in-depth discussions with senior management and insurers, and this has all helped to kind of shape our view on where things are. No one knows the true answer, but this is our best guess of where we think things might be. And was there anything really surprising in the report, or has there been anything more surprising in previous editions of the report? I think that stat that I said, one in five fully funded when doing the analysis was something that was a surprise to me. But also some other stats out of the report, lots of numbers flying around this year, but we think nearly half are over 90% funded. So many, many more pension schemes thinking about it. And in terms of the whole UK pensions universe, 
doing the numbers, we believe about a trillion has been wiped off the UK's buyout deficit over the year, which is staggering, really, because that's almost half of the UK's GDP. So big numbers there. And I, I think what has been my main takeaway is that over the year, how much the position has changed for pension schemes. And I think buyout now is now in reaching distance for many more schemes than where we were back in, say, 2021. Absolutely. And I guess the question on people's lips, which I know you've addressed in, in the report, is what does that mean for all these transactions, all these volumes? You've got this sort of huge number of schemes now who are very close. Lots of people involved with pension schemes will have seen that deficit really come down. What does it actually mean? Are these schemes going to be able to do these transactions this year, next year, next five years? Why don't you try and lay out how you're looking at the sort of supply and demand there? Yeah. And of course, this has come as a surprise to many schemes. Of course, many schemes had journey plans of 5, 10, typically even longer. And suddenly things have come forward quite significantly for many schemes, not all. And of course, this is good news, but I think it means that schemes now are in a position where they need to get their heads around what their position is and then decide on actually what is going to be their plan over the next few years. We have, all, of course, got the new DB funding code coming into play. TPR has recently announced their new consultation and schemes will be needing to target a low risk strategy, both investment and also for targeting their long term objectives. And so schemes will really be placing a focus on whether actually they believe buyout is the answer for them. And I think many schemes will come to the conclusion that it is. And therefore, they'll want to start thinking about insurance. And because things have been brought forward so quickly for many schemes, I think that's meant that the demand for insurance has been brought forward as well. And so suddenly we've got this huge surge in demand, which we think will come through over the next few years, you know, even this year now, 2023, there's a sudden increase in demand that the insurers and and the industry as a whole, we weren't expecting. And so there's a quick question on our minds about whether we think that there's the capability for the insurers to be able to insure all that demand that's out there. And thinking ahead to 2023, Charlie Finch and I, on behalf of LCP, have set out our predictions of, of what we think will happen, kind of doing a bit of crystal ball gazing. And I love a prediction. I just, it's a great time of year for it. So let's go on, let's do it. What, Absolutely. What are your well, the first one is that we think that we're going to see a record-breaking year within the bulk annuity market. So the previous record for the volume of transactions was in 2019, which was 44 billion. And we think we're going to exceed that. And based on our conversations with the insurers, we have regular discussions with the senior management and also what we're seeing from our own clients and other schemes that are coming to us to talk about this, is that we think there will be an increase in demand, which may possibly exceed the supply that insurers have out there. And then if that is the case, I guess that provides a new challenge, which we've not yet seen before, in terms of what that means for schemes looking to secure insurance, what does it mean for the level of engagement from insurers and also pricing as well. You're going to put a figure on it there. You're saying it's going to exceed 44 billion. You're going to venture a guess? 
Well, we did think about it hard, and within our de-risking report, we did put a range, albeit a rather wide range, of 30 to 60 billion. I think now we're getting a better feel for where we think the volume is. We're saying over 45 billion, but I would not want to put an exact figure on it. I think somewhere between 45 and 60 billion, perhaps unlikely towards that higher end, but watch this space, I guess. And I guess the thing also I'd add is that Historically, I think the larger pension schemes within the UK have perhaps placed more of a focus on self-sufficiency, whereas now we've seen larger schemes like British Steel, for example. This year, they've transacted with LNG and completed a number of large transactions. And we're seeing, I think, more larger schemes decide that actually insurance is the route for them. And so that's had an impact on larger transaction sizes and, I guess, eaten up the the demand from insurers. So just on that, what do insurers want to see? How can you make yourself really attractive to an insurer? Yeah, good question. The first thing is that insurers will be focusing on A, the the kind of characteristics of the transaction. So each insurer will be targeting a slightly different scheme or have different appetite for different schemes. So for example, one insurer out there at the moment will only insure pensioner members, but are looking to have the capabilities to insure deferred members as well. Whereas most others will insure both pensioner and deferred members. But then also the key thing is the size of the transaction. So some insurers will be looking to insure almost any size, but others will be focusing on those larger transactions. So that will be one of the key things. And then the next two most important things things I'd say is firstly level of preparation from the scheme. So they want to see that the data is in a clean state, doesn't have to be precise and and never ever changing, but it needs to be in a clean state so you can provide a reliable price and reduce any prudence that they're going to place on the liabilities when coming up with their assumptions so they can put forward their most competitive price. And also they want to have a good understanding of the benefits and kind of certainty around them not really changing in the future to any perhaps errors or decisions that will be taken after the transaction. So what they ask for is for sign off by all parties, including the legal advisors particularly. So it's really important that operation is made on data and benefits. And then secondly, and also importantly, is they want to get a good sense that this transaction is going to be complete and go through to, to completion so long as the pricing that's been put forward is believed to be competitive and also meets the scheme's affordability criteria. And the main reason for that is, I guess, insurers don't want to invest a significant amount of time in these processes and then come towards the end of the process, it's decided that perhaps there's just not comfort from one party with this particular process and then suddenly it falls over. And that's a complete waste of time for them, given how busy the market is. So being able to provide assurance to the insurers at the start that you've got all your governance in place, both trustee and company board sign off, and you're working together throughout this process as well. And also that you've completed some affordability analysis so that everyone's comfortable that actually so long as the pricing is put forward is attractive then it is affordable and and you will proceed so I'd guess those are the two main things. So basically it's just making sure that we all really 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 do want to do a buyout and you're probably not going to get any spanners thrown in the works at the last minute with someone someone somewhere in some role saying hang on a second I'm just not sure about this whole thing I want to do something completely different. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we have heard from insurers that that has happened. Say the CEO has got a whiff of what's going on and perhaps it's felt that they've not needed their sign-off, but then actually they've had a particularly strong view one way or the other that might mean that the transaction doesn't proceed. So you just want to avoid that happening. And then the final thing I would say is that actually just who's bringing the transaction to market. Obviously, the insurers, you know, work with strategic de-risking advisors and they get comfort in working working with those advisors time and time again, so like LCP. And actually, it gives them a sense of comfort if it's experienced, strong, de-risking advisor that's got a strong track record bringing it to market, and also legal advisor as well, because of course, that just gives them the assurance that we've also done the homework for the scheme when deciding that actually they're now ready to seek quotations and try and transact. And what's the main thing you've seen that stopped a transaction going through? Like I said, the governance falling down. I think equally, sometimes it has been decided that the pricing isn't where the scheme might not want it to be, particularly, for example, for those schemes which have particularly unusual benefits, for example, where we're not seeing regular pricing, if it is quite a unique type of benefit, for example, a pension increase, then there's always going to be a little bit of uncertainty around the cost. And then perhaps then it's not proceeded for that reason. Can I just ask a really, really daft question then? So how do you know if the price is any good? Is it just like you ask a few people and then the best one is by definition good? Or how do you go about helping clients understand that? Yeah, no, not a daft question at all. So we think it's really important that we provide this advice that we think you're getting attractive pricing. And there's a number of ways in which we can do that. The first way is that actually... Because we are a lead advisor in this space, so in 2022, we advised on over a third of the volume of transactions within the market. We are seeing an extraordinary number of prices from many different insurers coming through to us on a daily and weekly basis. So we take that information and and that intelligence and come up with a view on where we think market pricing is at any one time. And then, of course, that enables us to use that and advise clients as to where we think pricing should be for them at any particular time. And then that can give them comfort that actually they are getting a market competitive price. I guess it comes back to my point earlier about importance for preparation and transaction certainty, because, of course, the more number of insurers you can get involved in your process and you'll never have the whole market but the more number of insurers then I guess that just gives you comfort as well that actually hopefully you're running a competitive process and if you have say four insurers or whatever number it is then you are going to get naturally a more competitive price and then I guess the final thing that we would look at particularly for pensioner buy-in transactions is looking at actually what yield does the buy-in offer. So one way of looking at this is actually thinking, well, if you were perhaps passing gilts across the insurer to pay for this transaction, gilts provide you a natural hedge against interest rates and typically inflation as well if they're index linked. Well, a pensioner buy-in also actually exactly matches your interest rate and inflation, but also provides you with longevity protection as well. So let's compare the yield on a buy-in with the yield on a gilt. 
And at the moment, we're seeing pensioner buy-in pricing that is in excess of gilt yields. So typically around gilts plus a half. And actually being able to swap an asset, which is a gilt, which is kind of providing you an approximate hedge for an asset that's providing you an exact hedge and also longevity protection and also giving you a higher return also just gives you comfort that you're getting a good deal here and, and getting good value for money from the transaction. And for schemes that maybe want to go down a different route, what things would you suggest they aim for instead of insurer? Good question. I think if you look at the recent TPR consultation, there is a very strong steer to targeting a low risk objective. And the one school of thought will be buyout, and that has typically always been seen as a gold standard. The other school of thought is potentially self-sufficiency and a low-risk self-sufficiency state. I'd say that's the main other target for pension schemes. I think there's also been talk about DB super funds as well as another option. I think for many pension schemes, the bar is quite high because there's a number of gateway tests, for example, buyout not being affordable in, in the short term, as well as a number of others. And actually, I think it's proven that it is perhaps a more difficult option just by the fact that we haven't yet seen a DB super fund transaction, even though they've been around for some time. So yeah, the main options are buyout and self-sufficiency, I would say. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I suppose you, Catherine, obviously probably tend to see folks who are going down the buyout route. That's your sort of bread and butter. But I, I guess... Yeah, I think a bit more widely, we do see plenty of schemes who are wanting to go down the other route. Some of the larger schemes do want to go down a non-buyout route. And it feels like the self-sufficiency wording has maybe gone out of fashion a little bit. And obviously, the, the regulator is talking more about low dependency wording, sort of whatever. But I, I do feel, I've felt for a while, actually, there's a gap in terms of the thinking there that in terms of what that actually means on the investment side. So that's sort of beholden on people like us, I guess, to fill that gap a little bit, because there is plenty of interesting routes you can go down if you're not going to do a buyout when you're going to go down that route in terms of your investments. And I'd say as well, I don't think it's binary either. We've got some schemes, very large pension schemes that actually do want to go down the low dependency route, just getting into the swing of saying low dependency, not self-sufficiency now. And that, but actually they've got buy-ins and, and they view that actually get into a place whereby the majority of their scheme is in a buy-in, but actually they want to continue running on that scheme and not actually ever buying it out and transferring across all the administration to the insurer. So there is kind of a midway house as well. Yeah. And I just wanted to follow up on that, actually, because it's, it's a bit of a subtlety, but I think it's quite an important point. Obviously, you've got this terminology buy-in versus buy-out. Buy-in is where the people will know this, but the annuity is sitting as an asset of the scheme, whereas buy-out is where you, you trigger a wind-up and, and it sort of all ends. But it's been popular to do partial buy-ins where you, you buy in some of the pensioners because that's where lots of insurers are focused on that bit of the market, I guess, right? And so you can do bits of your liabilities that way. That's been a reasonably well-trodden playbook, I suppose, over the last few years. Do you see that being a little bit different in the future, given lower leverage and LDI? Other forces may be meaning that that's a bit harder to do and schemes might just go for kind of a one-off transaction at the end? Or how are you seeing that evolving? Yeah, absolutely right. And I think as off the back of the LDI crisis, clearly schemes want to hold more collateral within their scheme so they're more resilient to any 
increases in guilt yields, then that means that there's less scope for schemes to undertake partial buy-ins. So I think certainly over the immediate short term, we'll see fewer partial buy-ins within the market. But I would add that we are seeing some schemes still considering them. And I think for some, where they have seen improvements in their funding levels, Perhaps that means they might not need to hold so many return-seeking assets, which then in itself creates capacity for a partial pensioner buy-in. So I think we will see them, but I agree, I think fewer going forward. And I think actually for those schemes where their position has improved quite markedly, actually they may decide, look, rather than doing a pensioner buy-in as a midway step, they might decide to wait and actually just target a one-off transaction when insuring all the members. Yeah, I do wonder, I mean, I'm interested in what you think about this, whether there could be this sort of weird effect in the short term whereby there's actually a bit of a bottleneck because you've got less partial buy-ins being able to happen. We've got all these schemes who are well-funded, but less partial buy-ins able to happen, which is the kind of more well-trodden route for getting these things done. And whether it needs a little bit of a mindset shift on the insurer side, because everyone's done these partial buy-ins for pensioners, they've worked really well, but it's a different mindset, I guess, to say, right, let's do a transaction for the whole scheme and make that the most common scheme. What do you think the insurers would make of that view? Am I just sort of off piece there? Or do you think that's fair enough? I think the insurers are very aligned and kind of aware of this, that there's going to be fewer partial buy-ins. And actually, I think insurers are quite comfortable insuring the whole of the scheme and insuring deferred members as well. And in actual fact, many insurers will reinsure the longevity risk of the scheme with reinsurers. And many of these reinsurers are based in the U.S., And these US reinsurers off the back of COVID have, I think, recognised that they have a significant amount of mortality risk, just given the way in which they operate in the US. And so it's seen that actually a natural hedge for the mortality risk is longevity risk. So there is actually an increase in demand that we're seeing from reinsurers, particularly US reinsurers, for longevity risk for deferred members as well. So I think there's actually a keenness from reinsurers particularly and therefore insurers to insure deferred members. So actually, I think it's not necessarily a negative point that we're seeing these fewer partial buy-ins. And certainly the insurers are, I would say, keener than ever and still hungry for new business in this area. And just talking about new business, given the potential returns, do you expect to see new entrants to this market? (laughs) Good question. So I mentioned earlier that we had done our predictions for the year and the prediction that has received the most attention has been our prediction around potentially a new insurer joining the market this year. We've had a number of discussions with potential new entrants over the years. There has always been rumours within the market and they've been increasingly more so. More recently, we're of a number of parties really seriously considering this. Of course, the latest new entrance was Phoenix Life, now Standard Life, back in 2017. I think if we were to see a new entrant, it'd probably be from an insurer already set up, so perhaps a life insurer, rather than someone completely new. And of course, the latest newest entrance to the market was Rothsay back in 2007. So, and I think the reason why we've not seen any today is because pricing has been extremely attractive and 
demand from insurers has always outstripped the supply from pension schemes, but you might see a change to that. So now would be a good time for a new insurer to join. The issue for any new potential entrants is that there is quite a high barrier to entry. In particular, there's a significant amount of setup work from recruiting individuals who have to have a very specialist skill set, developing models which are inherently complex and would need sign off by PRA etc. Also, you know, they take time to develop relationships with reinsurers and different counterparties. And of course, they also need time to develop their asset pipeline as, as well and seek capital from investors to the extent that's needed. So I think if we were to see a new insurer, there's a question mark in my mind as to whether their first transaction would be this year. It most likely would be next year, given the amount of setup that would be needed. But yeah, definitely watch this space. And if I was a betting person, I'd say yes, we, we'd likely see one. That is super interesting because I, I guess, yeah, that's the obvious conclusion from saying there's a big mismatch between supply and demand potentially that more people are going to join the space. But you're basically saying, yes, but it is a bit of a drawn out process. It's not going to happen overnight. And so it's going to be a bit more slow moving than that in terms of new folks arriving. But we might be seeing the first new arrival in what, five years or so, basically. <laughs> I don't think it would be that long. I think maybe we might see someone announce they're joining, say, this year, but it will just take some setup time. So their first transaction might be next year. And is there an offering missing from the market that this new insurer could bring? So I think rather than an offering or innovation in particular, I think where we would welcome certainly a new entrant is for an insurer concentrating on the smaller end of the market. You know, I mentioned earlier that there's larger pension schemes looking to enter the market and you know a number of years ago we talked about the risk of smaller schemes being crowded out by larger schemes I think that could be the case for some still given kind of how competitive the market is at the moment so I think if any insurer focus on the smaller end just provide further competition at that end I think that would be welcomed by all. Yeah, that makes sense. And again, another really daft question, but what are you seeing these days in terms of small, large media? Where roughly are you drawing those lines in terms of the actual pound amounts? And where's the sort of sweet spot for pricing and stuff in all of that as well? I'd say kind of smaller is perhaps I would categorize anything less than, say, 50 million. Large is anything, I would say, probably a billion plus. Sweet spot of pricing, probably anything in between those two numbers. I think at the smaller end, like I said, there potentially could be a lack of competition for those insurers who are participating in processes of those size. And also at the higher end of the spectrum, there's just always been a question mark of if you are kind of passing across to an insurer assets in excess of billion pounds is ensuring that they can deploy all of those assets and still provide you with competitive pricing. And certainly we have seen that in a number of cases, but I think it's just more work for the insurers to be able to ensure that that is the case so they can still put forward attractive pricing to the pension scheme. Yeah, I was going to try and bring us on to investment, actually, because that's obviously a really interesting area. One area of the report that I always flick to whenever it comes out is those pie charts you've got on how the different insurers are investing. We'll put a link directly to that in the show notes as well, so people can go and look. I think it's just fascinating to flip through the sort of eight or so 
pie charts there to look at how the insurers are investing because the thing that always jumps out to me is just quite different actually it's easy to have this idea of oh this is how insurers invest and it's like well kind of yeah there's like half to two-thirds are in gilts and corporate bonds but that's about the extent of the commonality there's all sorts of other stuff in there in the other bit so i guess it's two questions on that really so it's any themes interesting themes you'd pull out on how insurers invest but maybe the more pertinent question is what should pension schemes be doing with their investments in the run-up months, years before transaction in terms of what they, what they can be doing with their investments? Yeah, and I do find those charts interesting. Like you say, I guess it's worth reminding us that those charts represent how insurers invest on their back book. So for those schemes that have already transacted, the asset portfolio that they might be using to back a transaction might be slightly different and, and will be different from those charts. And I agree, insurers do invest differently. There's different schools of thoughts between the different insurers. And I guess one which has been kind of divided opinion previously is equity release mortgages. We do see most insurers now investing to some extent within equity release mortgages, but not all. But I think actually what has been or will be helpful is the current Solvency 2 kind of consultation around what insurers are able to invest in. There's a proposal to even further widen the assets that they can use, which I think will help provide even more attractive pricing to schemes. But insurers are able to invest in more illiquid assets than pension schemes, which of course then means that they're able to provide a higher risk-adjusted yield than what pension schemes are on their own assets, which is of course why they're able to put forth the competitive pricing. In terms of what pension schemes should be investing in is a really difficult question. We've discussed A, that insurers invest differently. So actually, there's no right or wrong answer. But secondly, insurers will predominantly invest in in swaps rather than gilts. And we know many schemes actually will be using gilts to match the liabilities rather than swaps. So for smaller schemes in particular, it might be more difficult for them to, say, invest in, in swaps rather than guilt. So there will always be that difference there between how an insurer price moves and how scheme assets move. But what I would say is that there is always an element of credit within insurer portfolios, whether that be through kind of traditional credit or the nature of the assets that they invest in. They will have credit-like returns. And so some type of credit investment for a pension scheme will mean that it will help broadly track the insurer pricing but of course different insurers will have a different amount of credit behind their pricing so there's no again right or wrong answer as to kind of the exact percentage you should be investing in the scheme is a very hard question for schemes to answer and I think you just need to take a view that you a broadly hedge your buyout funding position and b you might want to decide to incorporate some credit within that as well to kind of match out any credit that the insurers are using within their pricing and presumably get your portfolio reasonably liquid so trying to run down any private markets or liquid kind of holdings yeah of course that and it's a good point to mention because actually i mentioned earlier many schemes have found themselves in a position whereby they are now within touch and distance of buyout but Given the uh, yield rises, the scheme asset level have come down. And for many schemes, the illiquid asset holding that they've got is now a greater proportion of their overall assets. And so 
actually the illiquid assets that they hold might be a barrier to them actually being able to go ahead and, and transact within a short because you need to be able to pass all your assets across to ensure they need to be liquid. Having said that, we have seen some innovations in the market recently with how some insurers are dealing with the liquid assets. So, for example, for one very large transaction, we're able to pass across a significant amount of liquid assets in excess of 100 million to an insurer. So they are kind of now getting more comfortable with being able to receive a liquid assets. But I think that um, this is a very new and developing area for insurers as also pension schemes. So I think watch this space. Yeah, that's always been the big question, hasn't it? Whether you can transfer liquid assets over. So you're saying, yes, there's some sign. And do you think you're going to see more of that? Is that going to become more commonplace, you think? Yeah, I think we will see more of it. The insurers are innovating in this. So, for example, we've also seen an insurer come up with a deferred premium structure to accommodate the liquid assets that a scheme has, allowing them to be run off over time. So we are seeing different ways around it. But I would say at the moment, it's not commonplace. And for many schemes, particularly smaller schemes, I think the first step will be to either run off their illiquid assets or somehow sell it on the secondary market as being the main two options or the third option. If it's not a significant size, perhaps less than 5%, you might be able to come up with a deferred premium structure with the insurers. So Catherine, what's the one thing you would like listeners to take away? For me, the key takeaway is that the market is getting very busy. And so it's really important more than ever to do your homework and prepare for these transactions. And to help you with that, kind of a strategic advisor that's got a strong track record in this area will help you focus your time, effort and money on the right areas to prepare for so that you get the best pricing from the insurers and maximise engagement. I don't suppose you know any any good ones there, do you? <laughs> I know a few. <laughs> Obviously talking our own book there a little bit, but yeah, absolutely. Give us a call. And what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about this whole area? Don't underestimate the importance of keeping things simple. Sometimes, and perhaps for a good reason, things are quite or become quite complex. But with complexity, I think there becomes lack of challenge, lack of understanding. And I think it's then also harder to unwind complexity. If you are able to keep things simple, I think more people around the room understand it and can really challenge it and ensure that it's working properly. So that would be my, my one most underappreciated thing. Yeah, it's a good point, isn't it? Because like some of the things that you talked about, some of the innovations, they're the sort of needed, but at the same time, it can start to sound quite complicated. You're talking partial buy-ins, deferred premiums, there's various other sort of capital-backed versions of this out there, right? And I agree with you. It is important to value simplicity in a way. And it's like, you know, just doing a very vanilla insurance transaction where you're insuring a bunch of the liabilities is, is what you're trying to achieve, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I know you mentioned Lewis through at the start, but any other recommendations for good books or podcasts? Well, I actually have two young children at home, so I don't really get much time to read books. I spend most of my time reading children's books. <laughs> but during lockdown, I did actually manage to sit down and read a book, and that was I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes. It was a fascinating read, a real thriller. I think it was like in excess of 900 pages, but it was such a good book. I've never been taken in by a story so much, so definitely would recommend that. 
goodness me, and 900 pages. The excitement kept going for that long. Oh, that is quite it was something. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. With children's books then, what's your top tips there and how old are yours? So I've got a girl who's three and then a little boy who's one. And in terms of books, they just love Dear Zoo by Rod Campbell. I feel like it's the right passage to read that about 100 times <laughs> to your children and um, love all the Julia Donaldson books like Gruffalo and Ruana Broom. And I, I could go on. <laughs> Tales from Acornwood. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, that one too. Yeah, those are huge in our house. We've got a two-year-old and a three-month-old. So yeah, the Tales from Acornwood have kept us going through many a bedtime story. Recommend those as well. Great, Catherine. That's been a really quick sort of whistle-stop tour, hasn't it? Through an awful lot of stuff. But we put the links to the reports in the show notes. So I think we'll wrap it up there. But thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great conversation. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Lovely talking to you both. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.